Good morning, church. You made it to City Church. You guys look good today. You look nice. Welcome to City Church. Want to just take a moment, welcome all of our locations. We're streaming to our various locations across Connecticut right now. New Haven, can we just put our hands together and say hi? We love you. Good morning. Good morning. City Church is one church in five locations, and so if you're new to City Church, my name is Justin. I'm a lead pastor here, and uh, maybe this is sort of a new experience for you, but one church all across Connecticut in five different locations, meeting nine different times every Sunday, and so we're excited that you are with us here. And so uh, if you have a Bible, you can make your way to Matthew chapter 6. It will be on the screen when I read it in just a moment, but uh, we're in a teaching series called The Standard. The standard. And we're looking at the life of Jesus and how his life becomes for us a model, right? Or a standard. And so the first week we looked at how Jesus interacted with God and how Jesus really set for us a whole new way of interacting with God, that God is our Father. And he invites us into that type of relationship with God where we can know him as Father. And then last week we looked at Jesus and people and how Jesus interacted with people in such a powerful way to change the environment around him. Today, we're going to look at Jesus and how he interacts with things, with things, with different things in life, the things that we have in life. So Matthew chapter 6, we'll start in verse 19. Are you ready? Can you do me a favor and smile at someone around you? I know we're in New England. I know it's cold. You can do it. I promise. You'll feel better after you do. Show them whatever teeth you have. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I want to talk to you today on the subject that uh, we'll call this sermon, Too Many Shoes. Too Many Shoes. Would you pray with me? Oh, some conviction just fell in the room. We didn't even preach yet. And the Holy Ghost is here. He's bringing conviction. Come on, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the power of your spirit. I thank you that you change us. And I thank you that you meet us week after week, day after day in our personal lives, but also corporately together as we gather. Jesus, I love your church. I love the people of God. I love the people in this church that we get to do this together. Thank you, God, that you're changing us, that you're making us more like Jesus, and that you're bringing us into a life of greater joy. I pray that in Jesus' name you speak to me. Come on, let's just make it personal. I need to hear you today. I want to be changed by you. I want to become more like you. So I pray in Jesus' name that you would speak to me. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you knew this. If you have little kids, this is a little gift for you, all right, to know this. That every first Saturday, there is a free craft day at Home Depot. Did you know that? Now, you may not care, whatever, but I have three sons, and for me, the last number of years, this has been a wonderful blessing. You're trying to get out of the house, trying to figure out something to do, especially when it's cold. The first Saturday of the month, you can go to Home Depot, and you can build a toy boat out of wood for free, or you can build a toy airplane out of wood for free, whatever it might be, and you put it together, you nail it together, it's really cool, and so me and my wife and my boys have done this for years. We've had fun doing it. We'll go to Home Depot, and we'll go build something, but inevitably, when we go to 
Home Depot will walk in and will say, you know, we're just here to build the boat, right? We're just here to build the plane. I don't need anything from Home Depot, right? And so I walk into Home Depot with my offspring and my wife, happy as can be, and then we pass the light bulbs. You know what I'm talking about? And it's like, we need light bulbs. We got to get some light. So so we get the light bulbs. We get a little cart. Once you get the cart, you know, you're in trouble. You know what I'm saying? You got the cart. And so now it's like, all right, that's fine. And then you're on your way. Of course, they put it in the very back of the store. They're very strategic there at Home Depot. The back of the store is the free little craft. And so on the way to the back of the store, we then pass the drills and we go, oh, our drill died recently. We didn't get a drill yet. We got it. We need to get a drill, right? And then you paint, you pass the paint section and you say, oh, oh, we're going to paint the bathroom. You remember we had to paint the bathroom. Let's just get it. Let's just get a gallon. We don't want to come back later. Let's get back out. And before you know it, that Home Depot trip was not just a free craft in the back. It was a lawnmower and a, a bunch of rakes and a grill and a whole bunch of paint. And you leave poorer than when you came in. Have you ever experienced this phenomena before? Is it only me? All right. Maybe for you, you're like, I don't care about Home Depot. Maybe for you, it's a target, right? I know. I know you. Or maybe it's Walmart, whatever it might be. You go in with one agenda and you come out with a much different agenda because you found all these things that you needed. Now, this is a problem in our culture, not just with Home Depot. We have a profound ability as a people to, in the midst of our lives, create and justify needs. Needs. Like, for example, shoes. Let me see your hand if you own a pair of shoes. Come on, let me see your hand. You own, some of you are like, I'm not participating. All right, fine, fine. It's less fun when you participate and when you don't participate, but you all own a pair of shoes, right? And I would suggest that the majority of us own more than one pair of shoes, right? And so you only have two feet, as far as I know, the majority of us have two feet, and yet we feel that it's necessary to clearly have more than two shoes. And so I'm wearing a pair of boots right now, but I'm, I'm a boots guy. Anybody else like boots, you know? And so so I need to have another pair of boots. These are another pair of my boots. These are my sort of girlyish boots, but I think they're cool. And even though they click, click a little straight, and I don't just have one, I actually have another pair that looks very similar to the first pair, but, but they're a little lighter color. And somebody in the room knows what I'm talking about. You need a little bit of a lighter color, right? Right? Okay. All right. I'm just making sure, you know, and then I got this old pair of boots that I've had for a long time. I just can't throw away because they're like my boots, you know? And so even though I just have those, and then this may surprise you, but Justin has some of these boots too. You know what I'm saying? Some of these, like, let's go climb a mountain. There's someone in the room right now in Middletown or maybe in Hartford that's wearing these shoes. That's fine. Jesus loves you too. And so I got those boots, right? But you need not just those type of boots. If you're honest, you need some dress shoes. And so I've got some dress shoes here, but you know, that's not like one pair of dress shoes is definitely not sufficient. So you need another pair of dress shoes. Cause what if you go black or if you go brown, you know, you got to have an option. And then of course there's not black or brown, there's gray, right? And so of course you need some gray gray shoes as well. And then you need sneakers. Any sneaker people in the room? I know you're there. And so you need sneakers. I need a pair of white high tops. I just need a pair. That's a part of my life. I need a pair of white high tops. Actually, 
I need two pairs of white high tops. If I'm honest, you need more than one pair of white high tops, but not just white. You need variety in your life, right? And so I've got some other high tops as well. Some of you are judging me right now. The Lord knows your heart. And so we'll get there. But you don't just need high tops. You need low tops. Everybody needs a pair of low tops. You know what I'm saying? And you don't just need low tops. You need some exercise shoes because we all intend to exercise. And so at least you need the shoes to pretend like you're going to do it, right? And so that's critical. And everybody knows that if you like sneakers or if you don't like sneakers, it is a necessity for you to have a pair of Converse All-Stars, right? Come on, somebody, somebody justify what I'm, yeah, you need, but actually, let's be real, you don't need one pair of Converse All-Stars, you need two. You need at least two because you need variety in life, and I will confess to you that those are not my only pairs of Converse All-Stars, and so you get the idea. Shoes. You need shoes. I wonder how many pairs of shoes do you have? And you might be here and you are feeling righteous right now because you're like, ha, I only have three, Justin. I'm not a shoe guy. I don't have shoes. Fine, fine, but you have hobbies. You have hobbies. And for you, maybe it's fishing. You've got 15 fishing poles or maybe it's boating or maybe it's basketball and you've got a million different pieces of equipment for basketball or for soccer or for hockey or for whatever it might be. Maybe you've got all these or maybe for you, you're a food guy. And you say, I don't care about shoes. I don't pay attention to shoes, but you eat out like 50 times a week and you're always, oh, a little lunch, a little breakfast. Oh, well, let's go out for dinner too. And you're always, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And what happens in our world is we create these needs, right? And then you get to your bank account and you open it up on your phone or you get online on your computer and you look at your account on Webster or on People's Bank or on Bank of America, whatever it might be that you use, and you look at it and you go, where'd it go, right? It disappeared. it, It just disappeared. I'm not exactly sure where it all went, but it's not in my account anymore. Our nation has an issue with needing more needing more. Researchers tell us that 40% of all the food in the United States goes to waste. 40% of all the food. In America, we have 3% of the world's children. 3%. And yet we also have 40% of the world's toys. All right? 3%, that just sums it all up right there, doesn't it? 3% of the world's kids, 40% of the world's toys. One study ranked the most materialistic states in America by their spending. And what they found, are you ready? Connecticut landed... Second, in most materialistic states in the United States, we as a state are 56% higher in our materialism than the national average, 56% higher. Now, we buy things because we think we're gonna make, we're, they're going to make us happy, right? And so people say, well, I need more shoes because I was going to say, or I need more this, or I need more that, or I need more whatever. I need a little bit more, and if I got that, then I'd be satisfied, I'd be happy. And clearly, we all know that Connecticut living people are certainly the happiest people in our nation, right? Wrong. We have a problem. We have a problem. The materialism doesn't make us happier. In fact, study after study after study shows that the more materialistic an individual is, the lower levels of happiness they will report. There's a connection between how materialistic I am and how happy I am, but it's a negative connection. So what's wrong with this picture? Well, the Bible has a word for this problem. It has a word for this problem, and it definitely does not get most popular words of 2018. The word that the Bible uses is greed. Greed. 
Greed. And this is where the service gets quiet, right? Greed. An ungoverned desire for things and for self. Greed. An ungoverned desire for things and for self. And it's interesting. I've been in ministry now 18 years. 18 years where I have given myself as a, as a preacher, as a minister of the gospel. 18 years. And I've had a lot of people confess a lot of things to me. Okay, And so I've had people come to me and confess pride. I've had people come and say, I need to talk to you about my fear. I've had people come and confess lust. I've had people come to me and confess adultery. I even had someone come to me confess prostitution. In fact, one time I had somebody come to me and confess a murder. And so I've had a lot of different crazy scenarios happen where people have come and confessed sins to me. But in 18 years, I have never had a single person come to me and confess greed. Go ahead and turn to your neighbor and say, that's a problem. That is a problem. See, greed, and this is what I want you to begin to understand about your own heart today. Greed is a master of disguises. Greed disguises itself in so many different ways. It hides in comparisons, for example. We compare ourselves to someone else, and it justifies greed in our hearts. And so we say, oh, well, listen, Justin, I mean, you've got way more shoes than I do, or maybe you've got three times the shoes as I do, and you say, well, there's somebody, you should see my sister's closet. She's got shoes. I mean, if you want to say shoes, it's her, or my brother, they really have shoes. It's not me. It's that, see, comparisons hide our greed. That's one of the ways we protect ourselves from seeing our greed. Entitlement is another way that we protect ourselves from seeing our own greed. We say, listen, I work hard. It's my money. I deserve that. I I deserve to purchase that. I deserve to have a little more. That's what I deserve. Laziness is another way we'll hide our greed. We say, well, listen, I don't have time to go cook. I don't have time to go to the store. I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep eating out. I'm going to keep buying. I'm going to keep charging. I'm just going to keep doing it. And it becomes for us greed. We are experts at justifying our own greed because materialism or greed provides some essentials for our souls. It provides a sense of significance. We say that we feel, if we're honest, more important when we dress a certain way, when we have on a certain pair of shoes, or when we drive a certain car, or when we live in a certain neighborhood. We say those things make me feel significant, and so my greed satisfies that longing for significance, or at least it attempts to. Another way that we'll try to satisfy our own souls with greed is we'll say it provides for me a sense of security. I feel safe when I have this much in my bank account. The world is crazy. I can't trust anybody. And so I've got to have this storehouse. I've got to hoard up these things because I know that the day might come where I need it. And so I feel more secure when I cling to these things, when I create these needs. Well, Jesus provides for us an incredibly unique standard when it comes to things. And it's a standard that doesn't fit into our boxes. You know, we like to think rich or poor. And Jesus doesn't seem to fit rich, and he doesn't seem to fit poor. In fact, when I read the words of Jesus, I find that sometimes I'm convinced that Jesus wants everybody to be rich. He says things like, I've come to bring you life and have it more abundantly. He speaks of this glorious inheritance that he'll give us. He speaks of having no lack. And so you read that, and some people go, oh, clearly, Jesus wants everyone rich, right? He definitely wants me rich, and he definitely wants everyone else rich. That's Jesus' plan. But at the same time, you read other things Jesus says, and it seems that he certainly wants everyone poor, right? He'll say, blessed are the poor in spirit. He'll say, sell your possessions and goods. He'll say, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And you read those things and you think, oh, well, maybe Jesus wants everybody poor. Maybe that's his best for me. 
When we look at the model of Jesus, we see that he's never hoarding anything. We see that he's never obsessed with things, and yet at the same time, we see that he's never lacking. There's never a time in the scripture where we find Jesus begging, lacking, or unable to cover his own expenses. So what we see in Jesus is a unique model where he always has what he needs, but he's never enslaved by what he has. And so in Matthew chapter 6, he starts to clarify for you and I his philosophy on things. I want to look at it with you today. Can you just turn to somebody around you and say, you really need this sermon, actually? Let's be real. Let's be real. You need this one. 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust, moth, not moth, moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Did you notice in that passage that he is appealing to your instinct for a good investment? Notice that? He says, don't, don't, don't invest there because it's going to go bad. Don't invest there because you're going to lose it. He's appealing to your natural instinct for a good investment. You and I hate getting ripped off, don't we? I mean, come on, we're from Connecticut. Of course, I don't want to get ripped off. I want a deal, right? I don't want to get ripped off. Anything. I remember years ago, my wife and I bought a Saturn car. Do you remember those? Of course you don't. They're gone now. But we bought a Saturn car, and we thought it was great. We didn't realize that when we drove the car off the lot, the moment we left the park, parking lot of the dealership, it was worth like half of what we had just paid for it. And six months later, it was worth even less than that. And when we finally needed to get rid of it, we couldn't. And it was a bad investment for the price that we paid. And I beat myself up for a long time because of that bad investment. We all hate the feeling of a bad investment. And what Jesus is saying is earthly treasure, it doesn't add up in the end. It loses its value in the end. So think about, for example, uh, a, a successful man in our generation like Steve Jobs, okay? You probably know who Steve Jobs is. He was the founder of Apple and very, very successful. He spent his life competing and scrapping against other, other software companies, other computer companies and everybody else. And he amassed for himself a fortune, right? He made $10.2 billion, with a B, billion dollars by 2011. That was his net worth. And on October 5th, 2011, Steve Jobs passed away. Now, most of us know that, but consider this very obvious thought. On October 5th, 2011, when the great entrepreneur Steve Jobs passed from this life to the next, how much of that $10.2 billion did he leave behind? Of course, the answer is obvious, right? All of it. Now, just, just think about that for a second. All of it. Jesus is saying, hey, 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 hey. You've got to see a little further. Here's someone who scrapped and fought and pushed and shoved his whole life, and then he left it all behind. That's a bad investment. That's not the way you are called to live. Beware of a bad investment. The scripture says it like this in Colossians chapter 3. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not 
on earthly things. Do you see that? What Paul's saying in that passage, he's saying you need a new focus. You need a new aim. I'm talking to somebody right now in the room. You need a new aim in life because your whole aim in life has been to acquire another pair of shoes thinking that that's what you need. But that's not what you need. It's never going to satisfy your need. You need a new focus. And Jesus tells us specifically why we need a new focus. Take a look in verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, your heart will always gravitate toward whatever you focus on. All right? Whatever you focus on, that's where your affections and your desires and your heart will gravitate towards. Let me try to illustrate to kind of help you with this. Uh, when I was in high school, I had a friend who had a Toyota Corolla and uh, a little tiny hatchback Toyota Corolla. And we would get in that car. His name's Dave. We'd get in that car and he would go like beyond the speedometer, you know, like so fast, like faster than fast on the highway. And he would just fly down the highway. And I remember that he would weave between tractor trailer trucks. And that would make me mildly nervous. You know, I'd be sitting there in the passenger seat saying, oh God, there's more for my life than this. Please keep me. But he would, he'd be weaving between. And one day I asked him, I said, Dave, how do you just weave between the trucks? Like, I feel like when I get near a truck, I don't know if you were like this driving on the highway. It's like, it's going to kill me. Like, you don't want to pass it. And it kind of like squishes you. You're like, ah, you know, and it kind of pulls you in. And I'm like, Dave, how do you just blow past him? And he's like, oh, it's easy. It's easy. The best way to pass a tractor trailer is going to help some drivers in the room. The best way to pass a tractor trailer on the highway is to not look at the tractor trailer. Instead, look straight ahead. And whatever you focus on, that's where you'll gravitate towards. And so if you don't look at the truck, then you won't hit the truck. And so I realize that that is in fact true in driving, but even more so in your heart, whatever you focus on, that's what you'll gravitate towards. And if you're honest, take a moment right now and assess what you spend the majority of your time focusing on. In my mind, I'm focused on my career. In my mind, I'm focused on my social media status. In my mind, I'm focused on comparing myself to someone else, my brother, my uncle, my someone. In my mind, I'm focused on these things. Well, that's where your heart will go. And Jesus says, beware of focusing on earthly things because earthly things aren't going to meet that deep need inside of you because at your core, you are not an earthly being At your core, you are a heavenly being. And the deep desires of your soul ultimately are not for a new pair of shoes. They're not for a bigger house. They're not for a nicer car, though you think they are. Those are just shadows of what your heart really longs for. Your heart really longs for eternal life. Your heart really longs for joy. Your heart really longs for peace with God. And here's what Jesus is teaching us. Temporary possessions can never satisfy eternal desires. Temporary possessions can never satisfy eternal desires. Come on, look at your neighbor and tell him, don't get quiet on him today. Don't get awkwardly quiet today just because he's talking about things. All right, you don't have to participate. That's fine. (laughs) Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, I read that at first, and I was like, did he just change topics here? You know, like we were talking about things, we were talking about money, we were talking about treasure, and then he just goes to this eye thing. And at first, I'm like, I don't, did he just switch topics? Because it's weird. Maybe he just moved on to the next thing, but he didn't move on to the next thing. Jesus is still teaching us about possessions, 
What he's trying to show us here is that greed really isn't about things. See, some of us want a simplistic answer here. We say, okay, Justin, just tell me how many pairs of shoes. Is it five? I can deal with five. Is it 12? I'd prefer 12, you know? How many can I have? And that's, that's not, you're missing the point of what Jesus is saying. Hoarding possessions is part of the problem, but the real problem is not the possessions. The real problem is perspective. The eye is the lamp of the body. You must have a healthy eye, a healthy perspective. So what's a healthy perspective? Jesus teaches it through the entire New Testament. A healthy perspective is a perspective informed by the gospel. Now, if you're new to the Bible or new to church, the word gospel might be weird to you. But gospel just functionally means what Jesus did and who Jesus is. What did he do and who is he? So what we find, according to the gospel, is that you and I are spiritually poor. That we cannot earn favor with the eternal God through our good deeds. False religion will try to tell you, light enough candles, help enough old ladies across the street, and you'll be accepted into heaven. Be a good person and you'll be justified. But what the scripture teaches is there's no righteous deed that you could ever do that would make you holy enough for a perfect God. And so it leaves you at a place of bankruptcy spiritually. Now it's from that place that God finds you and comes to rescue you in the person of Christ. He puts on human flesh. He lives a life as your representative and then dies a death as your substitute so that hanging on the cross, Jesus absorbs the sin that you commit 2,000 years later. The God who is outside of time sees the sacrifice of his son as the very hinge of history and sees all of your sins loaded up on Christ and completely absolves you of your sins because of his righteous record and it's now from that position that you find that you've been made spiritually rich by faith in Christ oh come on wake up today but the critical point about perspective is you've got to see it look how Peter puts it in his letter to the church he says it like this he says seeing everybody say seeing seeing that his divine power has granted us I love this word very very important word in the Bible Everything, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. In other words, Jesus has so much for you, but you've got to see it and you've got to know it. In fact, he doesn't just have so much. He has everything. He has everything your heart really needs. You think you need more shoes, but you need more peace. You think you need a nicer car, but you really need joy. And Jesus is so much less concerned about the possessions and so much more concerned about the core. And he's saying, I'm going to give you everything. And just in in case you didn't get it, 1 Corinthians says it like this, for everything belongs to you now. It belongs to you the world or life or death or the present or the future. Everything belongs to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. In other words, what he's saying is, don't you realize that life and death, now they belong to you. You're never going to die if you have faith in Jesus. You've got eternal life pulsating in your bones. You're going to live forever in Christ with him. You don't have to worry about anything anymore. You've got a father in heaven who loves you. You've got to see that you are rich. You are rich. In fact, I heard one preacher say it like this. It helped me. He said, the secret to having it all is believing that you already do. The secret to having it all is believing that you already do. And if you don't believe that, you'll never have it all, no matter how much you have in the bank. And so when the gospel takes root inside your heart and you discover that you're already rich, 
Now you're free from comparison. Now you're free from the power of greed in your own soul, and you can start to see the gifts God gives you, not as the ultimate satisfaction, but as just what they are, loving gifts from your Father, and at the same time, you can be content with what you have. This is how Paul says it in Philippians chapter 4. Take a look at it with me. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be, say that next word with me, yeah, content. I've learned to be content. That is a foreign language in our world today, is it not? Content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In every, in any such circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things, oh, the Holy Spirit's here right now, through him who strengthens me. What's the secret, Paul? Oh, you got to hear this. What's the secret? I found the secret, he says. The secret is that joy doesn't ultimately come through what I have. Joy comes through how I see. How I see. Right perspective unlocks real contentment. You might want to jot that thought down the next time you feel like you need something. Right perspective unlocks real contentment. When I've got the right perspective, I can begin to be content. Jesus ties it all together in this verse 24. Take a look. No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, money is a big topic in the Bible. Over a hundred times in the New Testament, talk about money. But in this particular instance, Jesus uses a word for money that's only used, I think, four times total in the New Testament. And it's an interesting word. It's the word mammon. And that word means riches or wealth, but it's more than that. It's, it's actually like a name, like personified, as if money or mammon was a person. In other words, he's describing you can either have, this is so important, you can either have a relationship with God or you can have a relationship with things. You're going to be dependent upon someone. It's either going to be the God of things or it's going to be the God of creation. Those are your two options. You get to choose. Are you going to be a slave to things or are you going to be a slave to God? And for most of us, we don't like those two options. We don't like the idea of being a slave To anyone, that is a very uncomfortable concept for an American in 2018. We say, hold hold, hold on, I was like, I'm not a slave to anybody. We like this idea of autonomy. I make my own decisions. I choose what I want to do. In fact, the majority of people who don't come to Christ, the number one reason is I don't want some God telling me what to do, some invisible being making right and wrong for me. I want to decide what I want. Now that sounds noble and it sounds wise on the outside. The problem with that way of living is to resist submission to God always will end up by being enslaved by what you've pursued. In other words, you say, I want to be free. I want to do what I want to do. That's fine. And so you get that career and that job. And before you know it, you're a slave to the job. And you right here in this room, some of us, you're working hours you never said you work. You're neglecting the people you love the most. And you're consumed with that bottom line. I know it because I can see you looking at your phone right now to check your email to see if that deal came through enslaved to the job. Or maybe you're enslaved to approval. You say, oh, you know, I just wanted this relationship so bad and I have this relationship and now I'm just living for that person to love me. I'm living for that girlfriend to accept me. I'm living for that boyfriend to say good job. I'm living for my dad to say I approve. My entire life is enslaved to that person's approval. 
Some of us in the room, you're here right now, and you're enslaved to a car payment that you can't afford because you wanted to drive a car that made you feel significant. Oh, oh boy. We just got personal. And it's killing you. Enslaved. Oh. See, autonomy is a myth. Autonomy always ends in slavery. But slavery to God always ends in freedom. Slavery to God always ends in everlasting liberty. And so Jesus says you can't serve both. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't have both as your king. Either you fully surrender to God or you inevitably end up surrendering to things. Those are your two options. Prove him wrong. It's been a couple thousand years. No one has yet. He says it like this in Luke 9. Look at it with me. He says to all, if anyone would come after me, that's what we're trying to do here today, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's pretty straightforward. He's saying you cannot hold on to control of your life and have a relationship with your creator. You can't know the joy and the peace, the eternal life and the love that God offers until you surrender every corner of your heart, including things. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians. He says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is, what's the last word there? Eternal. It's eternal. This is the standard that Jesus puts out for us. He says, listen, the standard that Christ has modeled is a life fixed on eternal things. That is the purpose and the standard of Jesus. And many of us hear that and we go, okay, but how? How do I do this? Because if you're anything like me, my heart is drawn to things. My heart is tangled up in materialism. I have an incredible ability to convince myself that I actually need another pair of shoes. I have incredible ability to convince myself that I actually need those things from Home Depot. It never seems like it's enough. It never feels like I've met the need. I am so good at materialism naturally. If this is a disease that lives in my soul, how do I strangle this python of materialism that lives inside me? How do I identify and then suffocate this serpent of greed that seems to rise in my soul? How do I gain what the scripture calls a healthy eye? How do I allow myself to see from a perspective that really honors God and lives for eternity? How do I do that? Well, Jesus in the text gives us the answer. He says, store up treasure in heaven. Generosity. Generosity. Generosity is the divine strategy of heaven to break the spell of materialism and expose the lie of greed in my heart. I can't see my own greed until I'm challenged to be generous. Oh, I'm talking to you today. And then I discover how greedy I really am. I can't discern my own materialistic bondage 
until generosity is set before me. And when it offends every corner of my being, it's the evidence that I, in fact, am enslaved. Generosity realigns your heart toward God. Generosity realigns your heart toward God. It recalibrates your desires. It causes your heart to gravitate toward eternal things. Of course, Jesus is the great model of this, who lived his life aligned with the Father because he lived in a state of radical generosity. He was generous to the poor. He was generous to the children. He was generous to the sick. He was generous to the rejects. But above all that, he was generous towards you and towards me. When the Son of God hung on the cross and paid the debt for my sin, he expressed the ultimate act of generosity, and he aligned his heart with God's. And he becomes our model. He becomes our model of what it means to be generous. I sense the Holy Spirit trying to get your attention right now. Because if we're honest... Generosity is trickier than we might want to admit. It's a little bit like a moving target. You know, we are experts at convincing ourselves that we're already generous, right? So it's like, well, yeah, generosity, praise God, I'm already generous. You know, like that's just, that's just you know, I'm a generous person. You should have seen what I did for that lady. You should have seen what I did for that, for that elderly person. You should have seen what I did for that, for that church thing. You should, I, I'm definitely generous. Check me off in the generous box, you know? That's me. I'm a generous person. I'm good at telling myself that. I'm good at convincing myself that I'm generous. But I need three boundaries or three guideposts to help me live a life of generosity. And I've shared these before. In fact, every year at the church, I try to make sure we talk about them at least once. But I want to share them with you afresh. Maybe you've heard them a couple times, and there's a good chance you forgot them. (laughs) Or maybe you've never heard these, and these will change your life. These are three things that will help you become generous, all right? And I say it like this, priority, percentage, progressive giving. Priority, percentage, progressive giving. Let me unpack this for you just for a moment. Priority giving. What does priority giving mean? Priority giving means I give to God first. I give to God first. Now, this is culturally ridiculous, right? In our culture, we'd say, why would anybody do that, right? I give to God last. That's how it goes, you know? I pay my bills. I pay my mortgage. I pay my stuff. I have some fun, blah, 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 blah. And if there's something left over, I'll give it to some noble cause, some charity, you know, when I walk in a stop and shop. Maybe that's how I operate. That's how the culture thinks. That's how our mentality thinks. But that doesn't display any trust in God. That says that you're king of your own heart, and it says that you're enslaved to the things you have. If you want to be free from the bondage of greed... You've got to give first. And so my wife and I have been practicing this now for 13 and a half years, the whole entire time we've been married. And what we would say in our finances and still say to this day is the very first thing we're going to do with our money before we pay our mortgage, before we buy new sneakers for our kids, before we put food on our table, we are going to set aside money to give it away for the work of God. 
All right? Now, that might sound like a radical idea. It's how we've lived. In fact, it's how all of the leaders in this church live. We give first. And so where do we give? What do we do with that money? I believe that the local church is the very center of God's strategy to reach the world. Not just because I'm a part of one. I wasn't a part of one for a long time. But I've been convinced, that's actually why we started it, that this is God's plan to reach the world. The local church in communities, reaching people, serving those in need, loving our neighbors, and learning who Jesus is. The local church is the center of God's strategy. I believe in missions. We support some young kids and in other parts of the world that are poor. I believe in that. But the center of our giving goes to the local church. Why? Because we believe it's the center of God's plan. And so we dedicate first money to God's work. It's eternal. That's the first thing, priority. But then we said percentage. Percentage. What does percentage mean? Percentage moves based upon my income. According to the scriptures, what we see from the very beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible is a pattern called the tithe, right? And this is one of those words that churches don't like because we don't like the idea of an Old Testament law being enforced on Christians. And I don't believe, by the way, in what you could call the law of the tithe. Tithe means 10%. Back in the Old Testament, people would give 10% of their income as a way to surrender and submit to God. In the New Testament, the the followers of Jesus had the same practice to start with 10% of their income to give it to the work of God. Now, for many of us, 10% sounds crazy. Like, are you kidding? Nobody does that. Actually, yes, people do do that. In fact, the vast majority of the fund of this community is built on those who believe in this. And so we give 10% as a starting place of our trust in God. Now, percentages, of course, move with income. So if you make 10,000, that's 1,000. If you make 100,000, that's 10,000. And so it moves depending on how much you make. But when we say I'm giving 10%, the scripture gives that as a beginning of understanding what sacrificial trust really looks like. But then... We believe in progressive giving. And what progressive giving fundamentally means is that nowhere in our lives does God want us to be stagnant. And that includes our giving. This hit me probably six years ago. I was giving 10% of my income first to the work of God, trusting God long before you know, we started the church and everything else. And, and, and God really spoke to my heart and said, Justin, you grow in your peace, you grow in your faith, you grow in your joy. Why aren't you growing in your generosity? And this is where I saw the principle of progressive giving in the Bible. And progressive giving just simply says, I increase my giving over time. So for my wife and I, every January, February, we sit down and we say, how can we increase our giving this year? Maybe it's from 11 to 12%. Maybe it's from 12 to 13%. Maybe it's from 13 to 13.5%. But how do we increase our giving each time we have opportunity? And I always ask us the question, is this costing me? I always ask us the question, is this forcing me to trust? And if it's not, I need to give more. All right. Are you thoroughly uncomfortable yet? <laughs> Come on, I'm just, just being your pastor, just loving you. Just loving you because your heart desperately needs this. And so does mine. I wanted to take a minute, though, and allow you to not just hear this from my lips, okay? Um, this is not like a theory that I'm proposing to you. This is a practice that I live And it's not just a practice that I live, it's a practice that the leaders of your church live. Um, But it's not just a practice that the leaders of your church live, it's a practice that many of the members of our church live. I asked one of our leaders, many of you guys know Damien, Uh, many of uh, you may have met him, he's our our, uh, student's director, oversees our student ministry. I asked him just to come and share a little bit of his story about priority percentage progressive giving. And, uh, and so he's going to do that right now, and you guys have to be nice to him. So can you just put your hands together and just welcome Damien as he comes out? Morning, church. 
Yeah, so about four years ago, I was as far away from God as possible. And there was just a, a moment in time where I lost everything, and I had to run back to God. But during that, obviously, my heart was hard to the things of God, especially in the area of giving. I, I describe it as I hated giving my money away. You know, I worked hard. I wanted to put it in the bank. I wanted to drive the nice car, and I wanted to go out and eat. And those things are good, but... As I got into my quiet time, as I talked to people who had been living this lifestyle, uh, you know, for a longer period of time, as I got with mentors, um, my heart just started to soften in this area. And then I met my wife. And if you know my wife, my wife lived in Africa for almost a year, and she's a giver. So when we, when we were about to get married, she said, we're going to be a giving family. And I said, okay, what does that look like? And I can, I can honestly say, if I walked into my house right now and I said, love, I want to give 50% of our income away, she would say, okay. And as I started to give, I gave a little reluctantly at first, but as I started to give and see and, and, and not lack in things and not, not, not be missing on, out on life, I have great friends, I can go out, I ski uh, almost every weekend. But as I, as I started giving, I saw that my heart started to soften towards that area. And now I can honestly say I'm at a point in my life that every Friday I see that paycheck come into our bank account and I get on my knees and I spend my time with God and I say, Lord, this is yours before it was mine. And I'm going to give this to you and I'm going to expect great things. And my wife and I love to talk about when we give away, you know, uh, money to sponsor kids in Africa, we're not just giving money away. We're sowing into seeing them be the future government leaders, be the future teachers, be the future church planners. When we give away money to our our friends who are in missions, right, we're expecting that big things are going to happen with that, that lives are going to be transformed. But most importantly, when I give money to this church, This is the place I was born. I was born in New Haven. And when I give money away to to this church, I give it with such joy, knowing that one day some guy is going to walk into this building and they're going to be transformed just like I was by the love of Jesus Christ. So as we give today, I don't give expecting a blessing. I give knowing that the blessing is in the giving. Amen? So thank you so much. And... Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks for sharing that. It's awesome. All right, so relax. I'm not receiving an offering. You're good. Okay? You're good. You're like, is he passing the buck? No, I'm not passing anything. This is between you and God, but this is long-term. This is long-term. Pull this card out for me, would you? Every one of you, when you walked in at all of our locations, you had this little card in your packet. It says the standard 60-day challenge. I want to give you a real specific, real intentional challenge. 60 days, that brings us just the week after Easter. So Easter's eight weeks away. That's the Thursday after Easter would be 60 days, okay? Here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want to challenge you to take your next step in priority percentage progressive giving, okay? You don't have to. No one's going to require it of you except God. He requires it of you because he longs for your heart. He longs for you to trust him. I don't know what that step looks like for you. I know what it looks like for me, but what's it look like for you? 
I want to challenge you to consider filling this card out and taking this 60-day challenge. It just says, I commit, you write your name, to practice priority percentage progressive giving. Maybe you don't give first, start doing that. Maybe you don't give by by percentage, start doing that. You say, Justin, I can't, I I don't think I'm at a place where I can trust for 10%. Well, then start somewhere, maybe 5%, maybe 7%. Start somewhere trusting God. And then progressive giving, what does that mean? It means I'm going to grow in this over time to the work of Jesus through the church for the next 60 days. I'm taking this step. It's supposed to say this step. It says two-step, but that's okay. I'm taking this step of faith to trust God with my treasure. You can put your email there because I want to just send you an email and say, well done. Way to take the risk. Way to take the step of faith. Notice I didn't put down here how much money. This isn't a pledge card. You're not committing a certain amount of money. You're committing to a certain lifestyle for 60 days. And, And I don't want this to sound like we're trying to do anything other than push you in your faith. And so here's something that I've said in the past, and I want to say it again because I believe in the God who meets the needs of those who trust him. And so here's our little challenge to you, okay? Do this for 60 days, and what you will discover is that God brings unexpected ways and blesses you. What you will discover is that more joy fills your heart. What you will discover is that the suffocating power of greed is loosened over your life. What you'll discover is you'll find more joy in the things that you have, and you'll begin to experience a deeper sense of contentment and thankfulness. And here's what I would say to you. If God hasn't met your needs, all right, if God hasn't worked on your behalf, if you can genuinely say that that hasn't happened, after 60 days, contact the church, and I commit to you that we will give you back everything you gave in those 60 days. All right? Simple enough. I mean, legitimately, we'll do that. Okay? My email is my first initial, J, and then Kendrick, my last name, at rcitychurch.org. You can email me in, in 60 days, in eight and a half weeks, and we'll make sure that that gets back to you. Legitimately. All right? Or just call our office. It's on every one of those little pens that you steal from the back. You can steal those, by the way. 907-7922, all right, 203. That's, that's the church's office. Either way, either way. It's that simple. And you say, well, why would you do that? I would do that honestly because I want to see you grow. I don't care about your money. I don't, and you have to understand, God doesn't need your money. He doesn't. He doesn't need your money. I mean, come on. He doesn't. But he wants your heart. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so he says, you got to invest your heart in kingdom work, in eternal work. And that means you've got to invest your treasure there. Just stand to your feet with me today. I really believe uh, my spirit is just sensitized to the Holy Spirit right now. I just feel his presence in the room right now. And I really believe that for many of us, this is a turning point moment today. It's a turning point moment for you. Oh, would you just say yes to God? What are you going to do with this card? You could chuck it under your seat and leave. Or you could allow this little piece of paper to be a catalyst to radical life change. You can die with $10.2 billion in your bank account, but none of it's going with you. Or you can live for something greater. Let's pray.
We're going to sing together as a church, and I just want this to be a time where you're able to open your heart to God, where you're able to stretch your faith and maybe even say, God, I've struggled here, but I want to trust you today. Or maybe to say, God, I've really never considered this, and now's my time. Or maybe to say, God, I've grown so much here, but I want to go to the next level. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I sense your nearness in the room right now. Would you invade our lives? Would you come and rule my heart? Would you teach me the secret of generosity so that I could become more like Jesus? I open up my heart to you. In Jesus' name. Let's sing.